Good evening. Thank you all for coming out tonight. We are absolutely delighted to be back in San Francisco. We've done about a handful of events up here in 2009 and one in 2010. And this is our 33rd Socolow Public Square of 2011 and our first in San Francisco. So we're glad to be back. My name is Dulce Vasquez. I'm the managing director of Socalo Public Square. Um, we're very thankful to Rachel White and Steve Call at the New America Foundation for helping us co-present tonight's event. Socalo is a nonprofit organization that roams all over Los Angeles, California, and beyond, blending on-the-ground events with online journalism. In case you're wondering what Socalo means, it means public square. So our name is Public Square, Public Square. And it says that in our trademark documents. <laughs> um, in, we do 50 completely free events per year, and we connect people to ideas and to each other. The conversation continues at our post-event receptions, which we are all invited to. It will be held in this room, as well as on our website, where we publish original editorial content every day. Today, in our Up for Discussion feature, we asked direct democracy experts for their ideas about the single best way to improve the initiative process. Some of their answers are provocative, and some are really simple. So, but all of them are really different, so please check it out on our website, socalopublicsquare.org. In everything we do, Socalo explores ideas that enhance our understanding of citizenship and community, the forces that strengthen or undermine human connectedness and social cohesion. So please read more about us. Before I introduce tonight's moderator, I'd like to invite you to a few upcoming events, even though they're not in the remote area. Um, you can find Socolo in Los Angeles, where we host speakers regularly, as well as Fresno, Palo Alto, Washington, D.C., Arizona, and New York City, and all this fall. On October 26th, we're in Palo Alto at Stanford University for a discussion about the future of e-government and whether it can solve the challenges facing local communities. And on November 1st, we're at the Fresno Art Museum asking a group that includes California Broadcasters Association President Stan Statham and former State Assemblyman Bill Mays, Is California Too Big? If you haven't already, please take a moment to turn off your cell phones or anything that rings, vibrates, make noise. Not your pacemakers, though. Please keep those on. After tonight's panel discussion. I hope you'll join us directly in the back here for a reception where you can have a drink and talk to all of our guests tonight and with each other. Now I'd like to introduce our moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe is a fourth generation Californian who writes about his home state and its politics, media, labor, and real estate as the New America Foundation's Irvine Senior Fellow. He is the co-author with Mark Paul of California Crack Up, How Reform Broke the Golden State, and How We Can Fix It. Joe is a contributing writer for the Los Angeles Times, lead blogger at NBC's California site Prop Zero, and a contributor to the Daily Beast. He appears regularly on radio, TV, and Zocalo, an expert on all things California. Please give a warm welcome to our favorite moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Thank you very much for being here tonight, and 
um, it's very appropriate that we do this now and in San Francisco, because in some sense we are returning to the scene of the crime. <laughs> um, uh, this this uh, process, uh, which uh, initiative process, a part of our direct democracy, which uh, turns 100 years old at the statewide level on October 10th uh, of 2011, was brought to us by a, a lawyer from Russian Hill um, who uh, convinced voters to adopt a slate of more than 20 constitutional amendments uh, back in that October 1911 special election. This lawyer, the governor, newly elected governor, Hiram Johnson, um, uh, included among this slate of amendments uh, measures to establish the recall, the referendum, and the initiative process. Um, establishing our statewide democracy. Um, there was a bit of a debate about the recall at the time, uh, but no debate that I can find anywhere in the historical record about the establishment of the initiative when we did this in 1911. So maybe this is a conversation that is overdue. Um, uh, remarkably, what's remarkable is that the system we have today of, of initiative referendum recall, it, there have been some changes to it, but it is remarkably similar to the one that voters approved um, in 1911. And, and many of the issues that are debated in the process, uh, paid signature gatherers, consultants, media campaigns, the, the influence of money, uh, were part of the uh, debate about the process uh, from the very beginning of its uses in the, in the second decade of the 20th century. Um, what's changed is the context. We're a very different state with very different politics. We were 2.4 million people in uh, 1911. We're nearly 38 million now, depending on who's counting, the state or the federal government. Um, and, you know, in, way back in 1911, San Francisco was the biggest and most important city in the state. And everyone I know in San Francisco still thinks it's the biggest and most important city in the state. So, um, we want to talk, though, today and get into real tonight and get into real specifics about this process, um, how it works, and how um, the original promise of it—the promise that may never have been redeemed in the view of some—of um, of a, of a people-centered process, a process that would give uh, the average uh, man or woman on that same election, 1911, we established women's suffrage in California. Um, the, the promise of having a direct influence, a direct say um, in laws. Um, you know, it's a, uh, you know, even supporters of this process, people like it, and most Californians do, acknowledge it's not very accessible unless you have a, a lot of money in organization. It's not particularly deliberative. Uh, there's not a lot of time for debate in our political culture. Uh, it's difficult to educate voters, and, and critics have noted its effects and question its flexibility, whether it's with regards to ballot box budgeting or as a tool sometimes for restricting civil rights. Um, but we have a great panel, this is an all-star panel, um, four experts who are very different people from different places, different backgrounds, but who have all been on journeys of sorts, um, uh, very long journeys in which they've seen a lot of things. We have a, a European all the way from Falun, Sweden, the, the ski jumping capital of the world, um, nice. who has spent his career traveling and documenting and reporting on the practice of direct democracy. Um, we have an American, uh, originally, uh, who grew up in Arkansas and lives in Virginia, uh, who led a great movement of direct democracy um, and, may, and had, may have spent more time petitioning on the streets of our country than anyone I can find um, alive. We have a Californian whose life worked is to make it easier for California voters, of whom much is demanded, um, uh, to make decisions uh, with as much information, good quality information as we can, and it's really tr spends her days traveling not just the state and the world to find good answers to that. Um, and we have a, a scientist, a geneticist and political scientist who has been on sort of a journey inside us uh, to learn about biology and genes and the effects that they have on the way we make decisions, collaborate, and even participate in politics. Um, 
So, um, you know, we want, to, um, we're, we want to talk about how to improve this process. Um, certainly there's a view that it should be done away with, uh, but for the po purposes of focusing a discussion, I think we're sort of going to proceed from the, you know, it's going to be around, so maybe we have to mend it, not end it um, uh, approach. Um, though we'd love to hear your questions to, um, that uh, take on the question of whether we should do it at all. Um, I want to start with Kim Alexander, um, who's the second to my left, um, is the Californian. Um, is president and founder of the California Voter Foundation, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to advancing the responsible use of technology in the democratic process. Um, and um, um, she's done a lot of work in areas where democracy and technology intersect and, and emphasis is on making sure that democracy is enhanced rather than harmed uh, by technical changes. And she's a true Californian. She's been here longer than my people. Uh, fifth generation, raised in Culver City, uh, lives in um, Sacramento, went to school at UCSB. Um, and to frame the discussion, and starting with you, I want to just, as a habit of mind, and so we don't jump around too much, try to, try to break the problems of the initiative process into a beginning, a middle, and an end. So, Every initiative has a beginning, you know, the, the beginning, the drafting, the filing of language, the qualification process. There's a middle, the campaign, the convincing, what we would hope would be good information and deliberation. Um, and then there's the end, the thing, there's a vote, and then the other branches, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial have to implement, interpret, make sense of it. Um, take me through it in your thinking. Where are places that we could improve this process, make it more people-centered, more voter-oriented, beginning, middle, and end of the process. Well, <clears throat> thank you for that introduction, and uh, thank you, everyone, for coming to this forum today. It's exciting to be here. Um, the California Voter Foundation is working to improve the voting process so it better serves the needs and interests of voters, and one of our top goals right now is to improve uh, initiative disclosure and make sure that voters have easy access to the information that's needed to make informed choices. Um, I think one of the most challenging things about, for voters, whether it's when they're confronted with a petition or they're opening their ballot pamphlet or they're trying to figure out after the election what was it that we just passed, is that these measures are very complicated and it's very difficult to know uh, exactly what you're being asked to sign, exactly what you're being asked to vote upon, and it makes people nervous. Um, I like to always point out that uh, when in doubt, most voters vote no. I mean, we talk about, you know, this crazy initiative process, and it is, it is, um, there are a lot of initiatives that we confront, but it's important to remember that on average, only one out of three initiatives pass. Over the last 100 years, um, only one out of three has passed. So voters actually hold pretty high standards. I would say that, that where we really need to pay some attention is to make sure that the process emulates the lawmaking process as much as it can, and right now it doesn't. You know, when a lawmaker puts a bill in, it goes to ledge council, it comes back out in print, his fellow lawmakers see it, there's a whole hearing process. We don't have anything like that for initiatives. It's just, it's in circulation or it's not in circulation, and once it goes into circulation, that's it. Um, when there's a bill in the legislature, you know exactly who the sponsor is. It's written at the very top of the bill analysis. In the initiative process, it's a mystery. All the way up through the, the election day, it may be a mystery who the actual sponsor of an initiative is. So we need to, this is the people's lawmaking arena, and we need to make it work in the people's interest. And that means, in my view, making sure that when voters are asked to make decisions about whether to sign a petition, I don't expect them to read 
that whole petition, but you could have disclosure at the top that says who paid to print those petitions. When they open the ballot pamphlet, I don't expect voters to read every single page of the ballot pamphlet. I sure don't, but I would love to see a list of who the top donors are for and against each measure that's on the ballot. And when they go and vote at the polling place, I don't even expect voters to read the 75 words at the top of every initiative that's on the ballot. Um, but wouldn't it be great if we had lists printed at the polling place that said who the top five donors were as of a week ago? Um, this is all feasible and it's up to us as voters to decide how we can shape this process in a way that better serves our interests. You track all the legislation on this subject. You're in Sacramento. Um, you know, a lot of this sort of basic information disclosure seems like common sense, but most of it happens, it's incomplete, happens late in the process. What, who's fighting? What's preventing this from happening, kind of, you know, deep, being more embedded in the process and happening earlier in the process when you're faced with a petition, for example? Um, there really has not been a lot of opposition to that idea, and in fact, there's a great deal of support. Um, this question about um, knowing who the who's paying to circulate an initiative has been a question that, that the Public Policy Institute of California has asked repeatedly in its public opinion surveys and consistently high um, uh, support for this, this particular reform. Um, unfortunately, there's no bill in the legislature this year that would implement that particular reform, but there is a bill, Senate Bill 334, which is currently on Governor Brown's desk that would require donors of $50,000 or more to be listed in the ballot pamphlet. And um, that bill, uh, unfortunately, was vetoed uh, by the previous governor, but hopefully will be supported by this governor. It is supported by the Secretary of State. Um, the only, the only, you know, the, the downside to doing that is that um, at that stage in the process when, when the ballot pamphlet is produced, you will have more money showing on the pro side than you will on the opposition side. So, the, op so the, the concern about this particular reform has been, well, it's not going to be a fair representation of both sides because the opposition comes in so late. And my response to that is, this is not a public opinion poll. This is lawmaking. And if you know who paid to put the measure on the ballot, that is a key piece of information to know who the sponsor is. Um, and secondly, the bill that's pending before the governor would also have notification to t tell voters that they can go online and get updated information on the Secretary of State's website. Um, but in my ideal world, we would have also updated lists available at polling places um, and also have uh, reminders to vote by mail voters in their packets to say, you can go online and find out who the top donors are. So it's very easy to generate this information. It's, it doesn't take a lot of time California Voter Foundation has produced top five donor lists for propositions for many, many elections. Um, it really doesn't take a lot of time, and it's one of the best shortcuts that you can provide voters. So nobody's really uh, standing in the way of the reform, but the problem with any kind of election reform is that these are um, problems that crop up on a, you know, on a seasonal basis. And, and you have an election, and people get really bent out of shape over a particular proposition fight, and there's a lot of high drama, and then the election's over, and the issue falls off the agenda. So it's very hard to sustain support for any kind of election reform, be it initiative or any kind of voting reform. Thank you. I'm, I want to bring in uh, Paul Jacob here. Um, um, you know, Paul, if, if not, if there's anyone who's, who's been involved in more citizen initiative campaigns in the history of this country, I'm not aware of them. Um, he's organized over 150 statewide petition drives in 47 states. Which three did you miss? 
<laughs> West Virginia and uh, Indiana, and I can't think of the third. Okay. North Carolina. North Carolina. Okay. Um, um, Paul uh, is president of the Citizens in Charge Foundation, which is um, and its partner organization, Citizens in Charge, uh, which is a national organization, a mostly volunteer network of people dedicated to protecting and expanding uh, initiative and referendum rights. Um, he was a leader of, of the movement that, through the initiative process, largely gave us the term, term limits in, in uh, many states of the country. Fifteen? Fifteen have it for legislatures and, and, and most governors. And he's someone who's um, uh, put his... Um, uh, his, his uh, he has put his butt, butt on the line, I think I'm going to say, for his beliefs. Um, uh, went to jail briefly in the 1970s for refusing to register for the Selective Service. 1980s. But 1980s, well, it was sooner. And, and, um, and, in, and, in, and in, in, uh, the Attorney General of Oklahoma, not so many years ago, for, uh, tried to put you and a few uh, activists working on petition campaigns in, in jail um, for hiring out-of-state petitioners there, and you beat him back, and I think pretty much ended his political future in the process. Um, so, now you actually say nice things about California, and I'm not used to seeing that these days. <laughs> um, Citizen Charge gave us an A for our process. So, with the same construction, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the process, what is it that you like in the California process and those different stages? And even with the compliment you've paid to us, what is it, what things should we be thinking about doing to, to improve it? Um, our view is that citizens ought to be in charge of their government, that the initiative process is not diametrically opposed to representative government, that the citizen initiative process is a chance occasionally. Uh, even in California and Oregon and states that use the process a lot, it's not, you know, the lawmakers in the Capitol are passing hundreds of laws there's maybe eight or 12 or in a, in a big election, 16 or in most states, two or three or none on the ballot every two years. Um, so that what the initiative process is, is a chance for people to represent themselves. Um, and why when we grade states around the country, what we're really looking at is, do they have the ability to do it? Um, and it doesn't necessarily say that, that everything's perfect in the process. Most states in the country got an F or a D because most of the states have no initiative process. They have no check where citizens can directly impact um, legislation. They have to go to their legislature. So California has a very robust process. You've got a constitutional amendment process. You've got a statutory process. You have it at the local level as well as the statewide level. Um, our view is that every American at every level of government ought to have a direct check on government where they can act with their neighbors to put something on the ballot and have a vote. Now, um, we all like democracy, and frankly, we all like it a lot more when we win than when we <laughs> lose. Um, but we've all lost, and that's not the end of the world as long as there's a process to then change things. Uh, two initiatives in this state... Uh, Prop 13 and Prop 98 get, get talked about a lot. On the left, they don't like Prop 13. On the right, they complain that Prop 98 is, is bankrupting the state. Um, the truth is the people of the state would pass both of those measures again. And so it doesn't mean that they're right. Maybe they're wrong. 
but it ought to be up to the people. And so that's why we grade California so, so highly. There are three states, Ohio, Missouri, and California, that received A minuses. I don't believe any of them got an actual A. Okay. Um, and, it, and it may be that California was a B plus, but it, but it, has, those, <laughs> it, it has those processes. And, and so it gives people a chance. Now, what I'd like to see happen in California is to make it more open and accessible to the average person. We all know that if you've got big money, and this is true in the legislature, it's true in all walks of life, but it's also true in the initiative process, if you've got money, if you've got a political organization, you're already a set organization, whether it's AARP or whether it's a corporation that has the money to then, um, or has a lot of employees, or whether it's a union, you've got a leg up over the average citizen. And so what we'd like to see is the process made easier. And if, if you're going to want to make the process easier, you have to have a certain amount of faith. Not that the public's always right, but that the public has a right to make the decision. And that's within certain limits. Um, you know, I think Prop 8 is probably the most troubling initiative, uh, probably for people in this room. There are probably parts of the state where it wouldn't be as troubling. Um, but personally, and not speaking for Citizens in Charge Foundation, it's one instance, and I think they're rare, where you could point to the initiative process and say someone's rights were taken away. The, the problem is that we have to establish what those rights are. And so I'm for full-blown democracy in this, in any, on any issue in which the public has the right to make the decision. When it comes to certain issues, you have to have rights. And it doesn't matter if you have 99% of the public, you don't have a right to tell someone else what to do in their own home, uh, look at the Bill of Rights, those count no matter what the majority says. Um, but in, so what I'd like to see in California are two very simple things. Make the process longer for people to collect signatures. Right now, you know, time is money. Right now it's and five months to collect it, an initiative. And, and how does that compare to other states? You do this um, There are some states where you have four years. There are other states where you have two years. Now, most people never use the four years, but uh, the, the mean is about a year. And, and we, we grade that if you don't have nine months to collect signatures, we, we give you a demerit. And so California had a demerit for having a short period of time. And the, and the most signatures to gather just as a raw number in the... Well, actually, as a raw number, I, I, California is the highest. But as a percentage, it's not the highest. It's pretty much in the middle. But I would like to see the, the requirements dropped across the board. Almost every reform talked about in the legislature. And, and frankly, um, the, the bill that, that Kim talked about, I think, you know, that, that makes some sense. It gives people more information. Two bills that were vetoed by the governor, one would have forced people, if they were paid, to wear a sign on their chest that says, paid signature gatherer. To me, I just find that offensive. Um, another would have said you couldn't pay per people for being productive. If they got more signatures, you couldn't pay them more. You had to pay them hourly. And that would have dramatically raised the cost. There are other laws. There's a law in the book in California that you have to be a resident of California. Now, I don't think it'll be enforced because the courts have ruled that that's unconstitutional. But all of those type restrictions are, are brought forth with the idea that we have to stop special interest from controlling the process. But every single one of them makes it more expensive. 
And so what it does is the, the tougher you make it to put it on the ballot, you're not going to stop multimillionaires or billionaires. You're not going to stop the politically entrenched organizations. You're going to stop the grassroots. So make it easy enough. The, the truth is, if you had to get 100,000 signatures in this state, I don't think you'd see a tremendous increase in the number of measures on the ballot. And if you did, it would be because people wanted to vote on them. Uh, a lot of people say we need fewer measures. Yeah. I think we need as many measures as the people of California want to look at. Let me, let me ask you about that last point. I see your point about when you put new restrictions on, it adds to cost and can limit access. But when you talk to the, you know, the legislators, the Democratic legislators who are pursuing this, at least what I do, what they seem most upset about is they're not, they're not, they're less focused on access and they're worried about what the process is doing on, at, at the, not the beginning, but at the end. That it's tying people's hands, that it's, you know, the, the ballot box budgeting functions and, and it just makes governance and the, and the trade-offs of governance um, very difficult. So maybe it's ham-handed to come down on access. And, and, but you seem to, and you're writing, you seem to like the, you know, California is this process that's somewhat inflexible. The only state, right, where a statute passed by initiative can't be undone except by another vote of the people unless there was language in the original permitting it. So why do you like that? Well, I, I like there to be some protection. When the voters vote on something, the, the, the entire public has spoken, and it seems to me that the legislature ought not to monkey around with it. Now, there may be an emergency. For instance, we're supporting a measure in Missouri uh, that's somewhat similar to California's, but it would allow a three-fourths majority of the legislature to amend or repeal a measure. And the idea is, if there is an emergency, well, then it allows them to act. But the truth is, if it's not a dire emergency, and the voters passed it, if you want to change it, put it back to the voters and make your case. And, and a little bit about the ballot box budgeting. Um, there are all kinds of things said about California's initiative. Oh, it's out of control. Uh, there was a study by the Center for Governmental Studies in Los Angeles, and they found that 82% of the spending on the ballot in the last 20 years was put on the ballot by the legislature, not the people. Your Supreme, former Supreme Court Justice, Ron George, went around the country saying over 500 amendments have been made to the California Constitution. We have to do something about the initiative process. It's out of control. Do you know what percentage of the amendments came from the initiative process? Less than 10%. The, the truth is, and, and look at Prop 98. It ties the hands of legislators. Well, the reality is there's a provision in Prop 98 that allows the legislature to suspend it. Um, and in fact, the legislative analyst office came out a couple years ago when there was all this talk about how much of the budget is controlled by the initiative and flatly rejected that and said the legislature has the control if they have the political will to do it. And, and so um, I'm not saying that it's easy to be a legislator. But it's up to them to make some of those decisions. And I think this idea that they should just blame the initiative, the facts don't support that argument. Thank you. Um, I want to bring in Bruno Kaufman um, of Falun, Sweden, where he's a local official now working on participation and, 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 and reform uh, there. He's uh, had an incredible career as a journalist uh, with uh, Swiss Broadcasting. He's a, but was born in, in Switzerland, a, a, a citizen of Switzerland, he remains, but also um, moved, married a, a Swedish woman and is a citizen of, of Sweden and, and votes in multiple places, uh, which is always satisfying. Um, he's also a political scientist and president of the Initiative and Referendum Institute of Europe, 
uh, was the lead, I think really the leading global think tank on this subject, and has also been deeply involved in uh, building an infrastructure around the new European Citizens Initiative. The Europeans, the EU, is going to try a new initiative process, an agenda setting initiative, not a ballot initiative that starts in April of 2012. Um, now, you've, you've traveled all over the world, you've spent a lot of time in California, um, and I've heard you say in public um, that you know, the problem isn't direct democracy, it's the way it's practiced in California. Um, <laughs> that, that the word I've heard you use is brutality to describe um, the character of our system. And, and, and I want to ask you, you know, first off, what you meant by that, and second off, you know, where, looking at the beginning, middle, and end of the process in California, what are some things you know, drawn from other states and other countries that we might think about doing a little bit differently? You can do a lot of things different. <laughs> I mean, this is the, maybe the only place in the world I wouldn't recommend to have more direct democracy. <laughs> Otherwise, I always say it's a good idea. And, uh, but I mean, you should have much more democracy. And uh, I mean with that really what uh, you have quoted, I mean the brutality of the process uh, has to do obviously with the origins of the earthquake and all this uh, struggling. And uh, what strikes me always here is this uh, unableness to learn and to develop the process. It's a, in a way a, an unflexible way of dealing with constitutional affairs on one side and on the other side, to, to put things into the, the constitution, like the, the salaries of dentists and such, such things. So it's a, a very strange, strange mixture between non-flexible and flexible process. And why I'm saying you shouldn't have more direct democracy means that what you have is really a hammer and not a, a, a screwdriver. I think direct democracy as part of representative democracy needs to be a multifunctional system of allowing conflict to be dealt with. And democracy is about that. Democracy is basically about dealing with conflicts in another way than uh, some other regimes are doing. And what, you, what, what, the, the, what this, the Californian system allows is to mirror conflict, but not so much about dealing conflict and not about solving conflict. And that, I think, you can, you can really improve a lot and uh, I would expect from a, from a state which has been seen as a, as a, as a, a state of, of, of new people coming to new places, inventing new things, a little bit more of innovative uh, uh, energy. And I'm very surprised, for instance, that uh, it's illegal here to gather signatures online. And uh, I would say, think what has already been said, I mean, one of the key problems in this state is when I'm looking into the electorate, 28 million people, but 13 out of them are not even registered. So why, why having such a system of, from the outset, uh, having almost half of the people not involved? So in the end, you get a, a minority really uh, voting at the ballot station. So it's not the whole people who are really involved. You get never the whole people, but having a system of excluding by that, I think that's one of the key things to improve the process as such. But obviously, uh, it's, it's all about uh, allowing people to be involved in the process. And I think allowing for online gatherings would change this whole crazy stuff about all these paid signature gatherers. Because this is, this is in a way, creating uh, really what you are talking about, an industry, a business. You need $3 million only to bring a ballot to the, uh, an initiative to the ballot. 
in European Union now, I'm really surprised how easy it was to convince the all in involved forces that when we are introducing such European citizen initiative, which will be for one million people having the same right as the European Parliament and the member states to propose new legislation, it will be one million, 0.2% of the European people, and they have 12 months and they can gather online. And this will create an enormous, of course, uh, 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 need of uh, having a certification verification system, but also it opens up the agenda setting to everybody. And this, this, this makes tr true sense. And then, of course, this point about having uh, the hammer, not the screwdriver, really the hammer on the legislator and not the screwdriver to make them more involved. I think this interaction, this is totally lacking, and this is one of the key failures in the Californian system. Let me, let's, um, you're from Switzerland, you grew up in Switzerland, your formative political experience, you've told me, was, was um, a diff, uh, an unsuccessful in the sense of the, it lost, but it made social change, a, a bid to eliminate the Swiss army. Um, where would we have got knives, uh, um, um, you know, when you were very young? Um, let's, let's play the comparison game. The, the California system was very much inspired by the Swiss system. The folks in California and in other Western states in the early 20th century when they were adopting initiative referendum recall were looking at these 19th century Swiss initiative referendum recall. So with the beginning, middle, and end, um, you know, the beginning here in California. Uh, you know, we, we have these, you know, it's about 500,000 signatures to do a, to do a statute. Um, it's, 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 you know, 800,000 to do a constitutional amendment. Um, we give people five months to do that. Switzerland, what's a, you know, how many signatures do you have to get for a ballot initiative and how long do you have? Yeah, on the national level, you have uh, 100,000 signatures, which is about two percentage, and they have 18 months. Wow. So an initiative process takes between, let's say, two to six years. And why is it that? Because when you make an initiative, the initiative is going to the, to, I mean, when you have qualified an initiative, it's an official proposal. And then the legislator, the two chambers, have to make their proposals, but they cannot say you are not allowed to vote. They can just come up with their own proposal and to find maybe a middle ground. So many initiatives are drawn back because the, the legislator come up with a proposal they are accepting. And, and this was one of the learning processes in Switzerland. For a long time, the legislator came up with a counter-proposal to kill the initiative in, because you couldn't only vote on the initiative or the counter-proposal. And that, of course, created a non-majority uh, pattern because then you had three options. So since about 20 years ago, we can vote yes to both, and then we get the third question, decisive question. And this has created a much better way of finding out what is the best solution. And in the end, and this was the, the experience with the, European, with the initiative for the Swiss uh, abolishment of the Swiss army, uh, it was really the whole idea of the initiative was not to win, but to set the agenda, to change the minds, to get the discussion. And I would say the system of direct democracy, the test question after all that is, are we happy losers or not? And if you are not happy losers, then it's not a good system enough. Thank you. Um, let's bring in James Fowler, who's a professor at the School of Medicine and Division of Social Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, we're calling you James here, though um, he's known by some after an appearance on the Colbert Report as Jimmy Jam, um, <laughs> at the suggestion of the host. Um, he's recently named a fellow of the Guggenheim Foundation, uh, top, uh, one of the top 100 global thinkers for foreign policy, and his work really is about 
the intersection of natural and social science. He's, he's, he's researched social networks, behavioral economics, evolutionary game theory, political participation, cooperation, and a word I never heard before, genopolitics, the study of the genetic basis of political behavior. Um, co-author of a, of a popular book called Connected. Um, now, you know, we Californians like to vote for something for nothing. I, I'm one of them, and, um, you know, we like, I like spending, and I don't like to pay the taxes. And I always thought that was because I was, it was a moral failing, I was irresponsible. But is it possible that it's my biology betraying me, that, <laughs> that, it's, uh, that it's the genetics um, of me? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to say that. Um, <laughs> you know, this, um, a lot of that research I, is sort of distant from what we're talking about tonight, but it, but it is true that there are fundamental aspects of our psychology that are relevant here. So, you know, one of, I study decision-making in a lot of these different domains, and one of the things that I, I'm hearing is, is that there's, there's a desire to have the process be easier, and there's a concern that there's going to be a lot more questions on the ballot. Well, one of the things to know about America is that we vote a lot more than people in other countries. This is one of the reasons why our turnout rate is lower. It's not the only reason. Um, but we are asked to go to the polls a lot. I mean, I, I, you guys are going to know better than me sort of how often this happens and how many things we have to vote on. And so when we start talking about making these things you know, less, res uh, less restrictive and putting more questions in the ballot, I'm reminded of this work by Sheena Yengar. Um, who's a psychologist who wrote a popular book recently. She's actually blind, an amazing woman. Um, but she, um, she's done these experiments where um, she gives people a choice between three different kinds of jelly uh, in one group. In another group, she gives people a choice between 20 different kinds of jelly. So this is America. And right? you, know, you think, well, surely the people are going to be happier who have the choice of the 20 jars of, of jelly. Well, she did measure their happiness level, but that wasn't the really interesting thing about the, the, the finding. The interesting thing was... People who had the choice between the three jars of jelly, they picked one of them. People who had the choice between the 20 jars of jelly, they walked away from the table. <laughs> and so one concern that I have is that if, if we make this too open, we're going to have to be very careful to monitor what impact this has on overburdening choice. Because I, I personally feel like we are at, at a limit of, of how, how much decision-making the average person can, can really take and pay attention to in, in these different kinds of elections. Interesting. Um, what, so let me ask a, a, another a, a sort of a follow-up to that question. Where too many choices can be a problem. Um, I, you know, when I interact as a citizen with the initiative process, I'm often alone. I'm, a, you know, I'm walking in by myself to the Target um, to buy something, and I'm approached by the petition circulator. I'm, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, person I don't know. Um, you know, most of the campaign material is directed to me individually on, on, in mass media. Um, you know, I go into that, um, you know, I go into that, the, the voting booth by myself. But so much of your work is about, you know, the nature and power of social networks, the information, the value of information from very close friends. And, and I wonder, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a tough thing to ask you to do, but can you imagine things that we could do that we know how to do in, from political science that would, in, that would sort of be more group-oriented, that would force us to communicate with each other and would sort of you know, make this a less lonely process, essentially, in how you interact with it. Yeah, so, um, so this idea of the electronic signatures, I, you know, I think it's a good idea to give people multiple ways to, to achieve a goal like that. Um, but I worry that as that goes online, that it's going to stop being a social. 
right? Yeah. So if, if you're not talking to the person outside of Target, and instead you're doing something just in front of your computer screen, that's not going to be very helpful. And so my thought for how you cure this is you, you do it socially online, because a lot of what happens on Facebook, and we're finding that the social activity on Facebook is actually very highly associated with real-world social activity. So if you interact with someone a lot on Facebook, you're more likely to go and have coffee with them. And this is exactly what the Obama campaign figured out and why they were so successful in, in their first campaign is that, that it's not about using the internet to scale up the number of people you can reach. It's about using the internet to get people to connect to one another. And so they had a record number of coffees where people got together with their neighbors and just talked about the campaign. And, and I really think that you know, there's a lot of talk about fundraising and about the use of the new technology, but ultimately they were reaching back in time to our evolutionary past where we lived in these villages and where we saw each other every day and we communicated about things that were important to us. And we now live in this context, this social context online that I think is bringing us much more back to the village and back to the social context where it's, we're more interested in participating. And so the one thing I would say is that if we're going to use these social networks, these online social networks, we need to realize they're an extension of our real-world social networks. And the key to using technology is to get people to meet one another in real life. So with your political science hat on, let's try to put together the two observations you've just made. Um, too many choices, too many things out there can be highly problematic. Um, but there's great value in bringing people together in some way um, to deliberate and have those conversations. And, you know, there might be untapped power in this process. So do we know from a political science perspective, do we have models that, you know, for, you know, for developing sorts of kind of deliberative processes that bring people together um, and might even be used as a way to cull the herd of ideas that, or the, the cull initiatives, you know, narrow them down so the choices are more manageable? I mean, it, you know, putting together what you say, it seems to point to something like that. Yes, so there are experiments in deliberation, and um, uh, David Laser um, at Northeastern, uh, he's done these really neat experiments um, with these town hall meetings, these online town hall meetings with um, legislators in, in Washington, D.C. Um, and the thing is that the people who participate in those deliberative processes um, are more engaged with politics, they're more likely to vote, they're more informed on the issues. And there were remarkable things. It doesn't just affect the people who are involved in those, but they went and talked to the people that they were connected to, and it spread the network. So spouses were more engaged, even if they didn't attend these sessions, because the person's energized. They come home, and they want to talk about it. They talk about it to their friends. And so one of the things to realize is that a lot of times, you know, political science, we just go to the individual, and, and we do something to you, and we see if something happened. And, and maybe not much happened, but it doesn't end there. If I influence you, even if it's just a little bit, that can spread in networks to two people and four people and eight people and she told two friends and so on and so on and so on. And, and, and it seems like we're not getting the full mileage we might from a process like this, I guess. I think we're on the, the verge of really learning how to do this in, the, in a very good way online. And this is what we saw with the Obama campaign. Okay. We have a list and a little, a little less than five minutes left for this, this sort of discussion among panels before we want to bring in the audience and, and make everyone a part of this discussion. So I'm going to do sort of a lightning round. Um, you don't feel obligated to, to address every question, but there have been so many ideas between the legislature, think tanks, and things um, uh, you know, pulled up. Um, but I'm going to just try out a few, and if you have a strong objection or a strong concurrence, you know, speak to it briefly. Um, the, um, the Green Lighting Institute uh, did a poll recently said that we need a, a system of review. Perhaps the, the idea, the preferred system of people in their poll was a citizens review system to sort of check on errors to the process. Um, um, and the Swiss 
have an office of people who help translate and write initiatives, uh, with a, where the motto is um, uh, uh, think like a philosopher and write like a farmer, so that um, initiatives are very clear and easy to understand. Do we need some sort of mechanism, um, some sort of official process for for reviewing and drafting and maybe taking, you know, drafting into a sort of more public deliberative sphere? Mm -hmm. Anyone? Yes, I think that's one of the key things to to, to invest into infrastructure, supportive infrastructure. We are talking when we have a legislature, political parties, they get some money, they get assistance, they get support. We need that for the, for the process as well. I, I'm absolutely convinced that we need much more to invest into that uh, uh, supportive structure to help people to use the process, not only those who already are well established have the money to, to hire people. We need really this support and we expect for instance, in Sweden, where I'm living, the process hasn't been introduced for only two years ago. So what we have to do now is to really help to, do, to use the process, not to make an initiative about the thing you cannot decide about, but an initiative about an issue you can decide about, and how to, to label it, and all that, that needs support. So I, I think this infrastructure issue is a very important one. And, and there's, there's two parts of it. There's no reason why citizens couldn't access legislative council to get help in drafting. That just seems to make sense. It's not terribly expensive. But they're, they're also in Oregon, they have a new system in which they have a, a uh, process citizen review. And as long as it's not cumbersome and burdensome to initiative proponents, why not have hearings and other ways for the public to weigh in? It's going to make a measure better. If someone doesn't want to take that input, then they should be free not to take it. But why not offer that type of process? And I really like um, the idea Kim talked about, about, um, about the, um, treating this like we do, say, a major campaign for governor. I mean, those are debates, they're town hall meetings. You have to make it social. I really think yeah. once you make it social, it's going to be easy to write like a farmer because you're going to figure out what the core message is when you have to communicate it to 100,000 people. Well, and I wanted to pick up on something that James was talking about, which is that exponential impact that people have. Um, we have done a project over a number of years to promote election house parties because people have been having these informal gatherings with their friends and families where they go through the ballot together and make it a social occasion and, and get, you know, maybe you know something about this measure and your neighbor knows something about this one and you put your heads together and that creates um, a fun event where you also get informed. I think we need, if we had a citizens review process, it could supplement those kinds of activities. It'd be like someone doing your homework for you and I think that this is something that voters want they, they need to know before they make their decisions, you asked at the beginning, what's at the end? What's at the end for a lot of voters is disappointment. Um, we have a lot of people who are really disappointed that Prop 8 has not been implemented. And if there had been a citizens review process, it might have flagged the fact at the beginning that there might have been a constitutional challenge to the whole nature of Prop 8. People ended up feeling very let down that they voted for something they thought they had the right to vote on and then they're being told, oh, actually, you don't have the right to vote on this. So I think that if we could have this sort of group to do the homework, help do the homework for you that voters could trust, it could facilitate more uh, group socializing interaction and you'd have one more resource that you could use. I would agree wholeheartedly with that, except I think Prop 8 is not a good example because <laughs> no. I think that I think Prop 8 is an open sore where people just diametrically uh, uh, disagree and that the process of democracy, as messy as it is, the country is going to come to a consensus. Um, uh, banning same-sex marriage 
has succeeded on every ballot it's been on, and at the same time, if you track public opinion, support for same-sex marriage has gone up and up and up. What's happening is that the public is working it out, and it's, it's ugly sometimes, but the public, I think, is working it out, and I think it's a case in which there's no way to get around that. It's, you know, our, our whole history has had problems like this, but I think generally, this type of process where we review things would help on measures that didn't have that kind of, you know, 50-50 fight. We have about a minute, and this is the super lightning round, so 10 seconds. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, um, that begs one of the questions I want to test. Um, some other states, including our neighboring states, uh, Arizona, Montana is somewhere up there. Um, I'm a product of California schools. Um, <laughs> uh, have limit the subject matter, um, particularly um, limit certain things that are fiscal from the ballot. And then there are some countries where there have been attempts to limit certain subjects that might be classified as infringing on human rights. Um, and I wonder, each of you briefly, do you think that makes sense or, or not? Well, we're lucky in this country that all of these state initiative processes have a backstop. We've got the Bill of Rights. And, and so if it violates someone's rights, just like Prop 8, it's going to go to court, and the court is going to overrule it. And people are going to be disappointed, but that's the process. And I think most of us like the idea of, a, of an open democratic process but with certain rights. Anyone like the idea of limiting, taking, I mean, some things aren't subject for direct democracy votes? No, that's why we have the courts. Mm. But, I think, but I think we need to know what the parameters are. I mean, I think that if, if it's true that we don't have the right to limit rights through the initiative process, then voters should be told that up front and not after they've voted on something. Yeah, they need but to the, understand. It's, it, it's not the case that once we vote on this, then everything else is going to fall no. in line. Yes. But this but, is one part of the process. But oh, yeah. we, well, don't, we, don't, <laughs> we don't know We don't know what the courts are going to decide. So it's not as if we can do it before the fact. I think you want the public to weigh in, and then the courts have to do their, their job. Yeah. I mean, there are like really two dimensions. I mean, to take out certain issues of the initiative process is really not logic when it comes to comparing what the legislator can do. I mean, the initiative process should do exactly the same thing as the legislator. Otherwise, you say people are more stupid, but then they are the stupid people electing the legislature. <laughs> but, but, but when it comes to the human rights issues, it's what has been said, I mean, it must be clear how the process is. We had in Switzerland a vote about banning minerals, as you have may heard, initiative. And it was a big discussion, should that be allowed? Because we know the European courts will not, will, will not allow it. So, but then you have to be clear. Okay, you can vote, but it will not be possible to implement. And this is a clear decision. And then you would have to have a vote to leave the, this court system of Europe. So there is a, a, it must be transparent how these things go, and it's important to have check and balances on that very clearly. Good thought. With that, we should open this up to questions. Jay? At this point, we'll begin the question and answer portion of our program, Dulce. And I will be hovering up and down the side aisles. If you have a question, we ask that you please do raise your hand. If we pick you, we ask that you come out to us to answer your question. Okay, and with that, we'll go to our first question over here. Hello, my name is Troy Massey. How do each, I'd like to hear from each of you on how you envision the transparency process, the transparency process along each point of the initiative process. Thank you. The question about transparency. What, you know, how can we make, what's the beginning, the middle, and the end? 
Well, um, what I... Is this your reporter training, the beginning? <laughs> 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 it's a story to tell here. <laughs> yes. Don't you have to get it all in you the have to explain things to me as though I were two years old. <laughs> um, when, when, I, when I think about transparency, I think about money. There are a lot of other ways the process could be transparent, but my focus is on how do you make the money transparent. And so um, what we are promoting is that we move into an era of publicized disclosure, that it's not enough that information exists somewhere on the Secretary of State's website and maybe you can dig it out and make sense of it. And let me tell you, anyone who's tried to look up this information and, and get, get an informed idea about the money, you, you, good luck. I mean, I have reporters who call me that have been covering California politics for dozens of years and they cannot figure out that website. So, um, it, you know, it shouldn't be this mysterious. And so we want to put, we want to see the information about who's funding initiatives, we want to put that under voters' noses at the key points when they have to make decisions in the process, when they sign initiative petitions, when they crack open their ballot pamphlet, and when they actually cast their votes. We want that information to be not, not just available, but readily accessible. Let me try to jump beyond money to this, because one of the problems is we've done a, we have a big, long constitution in this state. We've done a lot of things, both by legislature and initiative. And is there any way possible to give, I mean, I struggle with this, I write about this for a living, is there any way possible to give people a sense of how an initiative is going to interact with the other parts of the, you know, the most extensive other parts of existing law or the existing constitutional language? Because it just seems that, you know, it's like you're, sometimes it feels like you're throwing another room on the Winchester Mystery House, aren't you? <laughs> you know, I, I think, and I don't think there's a law you can pass that will solve this problem, but I think the media badly underreports on initiatives and doesn't give a lot of that information. In most states, there is a fiscal impact statement, and that is generally the most important factor in whether an initiative succeeds or doesn't. If an initiative costs a lot of money and it's right there on the ballot, it tends to go down. If it doesn't, it has a much, much better chance. And, and I think with, with disclosure, you know, in almost every state, uh, you have to, someone has to go publicly and say, I'm the proponent or a group of people. You have to report what you spend. And I think we do want to make that very readily available. And you're right, it's not. In most states, it's very difficult to find out. But I think you also have to stop at a certain point and, and the government ought not to be in the position of shoving certain information into voters' faces when they're about to vote and, and uh, deciding what voters need to pay attention to. Let's make the information available in every way we can, but I think we want to stop short of, on the ballot, you know, putting a big thing about, um, this may be about this issue, but here's who funded it. And I think generally, who funded an issue is not going to be as determinative as sometimes it's made out to be. Um, now, with, with a big exception, last year you had PG&E spend $46 million against almost nothing and lose. So I do think, and, and there's been studies done that show when the yes side of an initiative outspends the no side better than two to one, its chances of success go down. So voters are, are they're smart. Um, not all voters, but most of the voters are. And if you look at the actual statistics, um, measures that spend a lot of money trying to convince people, people start to be wary. And each of you on briefly yeah. transparency? Yeah, I, I think one problem is, again, here it's 
the process is too fast. There are too few, let's say, people involved in, in, in reviewing. And that would be changed if, if the process would be longer, if the legislator would have a say, uh, if it would be more uh, back and forward in looking what is the consequences of this initiative for the Constitution. But things are quick fix, fast track to the, to the ballot, and this is not good for this understanding. Secondly, regarding transparency when it comes to the label uh, on the ballot as you are proposing, I'm a little bit skeptical about that. It's like when you have a cigarette package saying that kills you, you know. I mean, <laughs> I'm not so sure that helps really in this uh, respective, but when it comes to the transparency, of course, disclosure is very, and you have already a lot of disclosure here. I mean, in Europe, there are many places there is nothing like that. The British, they have a book of 100 pages about the fairness rules in referendum, but they have almost never a referendum. So they are so... <laughs> they, they just think about it should be fair, but they never have it. So it's a little bit an, the idea of doing things too good and then not, then not allowing to do it. But a, a middle ground would be nice. I mean, to, to go through your clear disclosure rules and to be very clear about that as an informational tool, and the media plays obviously a role in that. I just want to clarify that our, our proposal is that there would be lists of top donors available at polling places that voters could request to, to view, not that the donors would be listed on the, on the ballot itself. I don't think that would right. probably pass through the court. Someone suggested that, but no, that, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's not what you're suggesting. Maybe we should gamify this. So <laughs> we're starting yeah. to do a lot of work, work with uh, social networks and trying to get people to change their health behavior. That's a lot harder than getting someone to vote. Um, and the people who are having the most success right now are game designers. Video game designers. Yeah. yeah. So, so maybe we need some help from them about how to turn this, you know, 500-page thing down into, you know, some game you play online where you get the information quickly and it's fun. I don't know. I'll call the electronic arts people in the morning. <laughs> uh, Question on your left over here. I I just wanted to tell everyone. This is Karen Jacobs. I'm from Berkeley. And on Saturday, Move On is having meetings all over the country, thousands of meetings uh, to discuss what's happening in our country in terms of politics and how to improve it. Anyone can go. It's free. Just go to moveon.org, and you can type in your zip code and um, find out where the nearest one is to you. We have a question in the back over here. My name is Beth Seligman. Um, this question pertains to voter participation in this country in general. Um, since the polls are on a Tuesday here on a work day with no holiday and not on the weekend, um, wondering have there been any studies comparing that to other countries that actually declare a holiday for voting in terms of voter participation? Weekends do, I mean, having voting available on weekends does improve turnout, but in a state like California, we have north of 50% voting absentee now, so it's less of a problem than it used to be. But you're talking about, you know, a couple of percentage points. It's not a lot. And we, we did a study of uh, non-voters and infrequent voters a couple of years ago, uh, and we asked that question, if, if we had voting uh, on a weekend day, would you be more likely to vote? We, we also asked if you'd be less likely to vote, and it actually came out to a wash. It was the same percentage said they'd be more likely to vote as said they'd be less likely to vote. Are we, are we outliers in the world voting on Tuesday? Does most of the rest of the world, Bruno, vote on the weekends? No, the Danes also do it, but they have a, a voting process going on for three weeks, so you can start three weeks ahead of the vote 
every railway station, every public office you can go and vote. So that's, that's the trend everywhere in Europe to have a voting period over several weeks so you don't have a, a one-day voting. That seems to be a very uh, old-fashioned way. And, and I would love to see that here. I mean, I think we would be much better off to have voting go on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Um, and let people vote over any number of days in that time frame. I mean, there are a lot of things that we could do to modernize our voting process and take advantage of technology and create voting centers and do ballots on demand. And how, and how would we pay for that? Well, and how, well, here's the biggest problem with elections, is that uh, it is a federal and state unfunded mandate on local government. So the federal government and the state government do not pay any of their fair share of the cost of putting on elections to the counties. So this is why the counties put together elections with duct tape and string because they literally have no funding uh, to do it. So if we really want to have the kind of elections and participation that we want, we need the federal and state government to pay their fair share of the costs of putting on federal and state elections. And I don't know how it works in California, but there are a lot of states where you have a, a period two or three weeks before the election where you can go vote early. There's not as many polling places open. You usually have to go to a library or a public building, but, but uh, that, and that seems to make sense. I've got another question back here. Hi, uh, thank you. Uh, my, name is, <clears throat> uh, my name is Sean McDougall. I'm with a group called the uh, Community Democracy Project. And we've been really inspired by uh, Porto Alegre, Brazil, where for the last 20 years they've had um, a form of direct democracy at the local level in terms of the budget as a city of over a million people. And uh, we're interested in sort of doing something similar in the East Bay, looking at Oakland and Berkeley, and what can we do to create citizen sort of voting at the local level. Um, and I'm interested in international and uh, national examples of, of, of participatory democracy, of ways that citizens get together and actually have a, a heightened level of political discourse. Um, I know it's hard sometimes to compare different places. You know, you know, in Europe, they have parliamentary systems, so the level of political discourse is shaped by that, very different than a two-party system. But I'm interested in what are some of the best examples, best practices you've seen of sort of participatory culture in terms of politics, in terms of the people at the local community level getting together on a regular basis with neighbors to talk about issues. Bruno, that sounds no, like a good question for you. That's a big question, but I mean, <laughs> that, that, that has been so much uh, uh, trendy to have participatory democracy, and uh, Porto Alegre has got an enormous uh, uh, branding in being one of the first in a, in a non-European, non-American place. The problem is Porto Alegre is a little bit, it's a very nice example, but it, it was going well as long as the, the, the people in charge, the people uh, running the place were in favor of that. When they got a new election and they were voted out, the new mayor wasn't interested anymore in this type of participation. And there we have a little bit of the problem of many participatory nice exercises. They are based on the goodwill of those in power and they are uh, conducting that and that's, that's very nice. I think we have to, to see participatory democracy really as a part of a, of a, of a, of a, of a democracy which really takes democracy uh, uh, serious, which includes that the people also can make decisions. If the people are just consulted, if the people can just say their opinion, that doesn't really change that. But a direct democracy without any deliberation and participation is of course also a problem. As an election chairman of my uh, city, I'm, I'm obliged to count every vote, but I would say what we have to go for is also that every voice is heard, and this is the far-reaching, more developing sphere of where we can see many examples, and Porto Alegre is obviously a very positive one. 
One more question here in the back, which will be our last question, but before we get to it, we'd like to invite you all once again to a reception that will be taking place directly in the back over here. We encourage you to grab a drink and continue in conversation with each other and with our panelists. With that, we'll go to our last question. Hi, my name is Roshan, and my question is first an observation. I'm hearing the discussion about um, do we put donors on the, on the ballot or, um, or don't we, and how much information and choice should we give to voters? And it's reminding me a lot of, of marketing and advertising to consumers, and it's, and it's kind of in line with our consumerist society. And, I'm, and that's problematic for me because it's, it's, it seems like you're selling a product. So my question is, in moving towards transparency, how do you move away from from um, presenting measures and, and initiatives as, as products and, and deciding how much information to give people. It's like, it's like an ingredients list and there's seven different names for MSG. Just tell me it's MSG so I know what I'm eating. Um, and and that's, it's messy that way. So how do we give voters more information without this clutter? And, and why is it a problem to present choices? My problem with the jelly analogy, I know I'm rambling on, but my problem with the jelly analogy is that it's, it's jelly, it's one product. And you have all these different flavors, and I agree simplicity is better, but, but initiatives aren't, aren't all about one thing. So why not give all of these options for all of these different things, and why not present who's funding this, and, and why is it so hard to have that information? It's information. Why don't we have the information is my question, I guess. So let me uh, I'll adjust that. That's, that's an excellent, excellent observation. Um, first of all, jelly is not the only experiment that's been done. There have been a wide variety of experiments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, you can build a theory on one experiment, I guess. But, um, but there is a connection with marketing and with information <clears throat> transmission because those guys, they know a lot about human decision-making. A lot of what scientists know about human decision-making is in that context. I will tell you that there's other kinds of decision-making where people don't behave the same way. So just for example, if I ask you to come donate blood, you seem like the kind of person you probably would come and do that. But what if I said, I'll pay you $10, why don't you come donate some blood? What we have found in experiments is that you are actually less likely to do that when I pay you more money, which blows the standard economist's mind. They can't believe that, that, you know, that, that people would actually engage that kind of behavior because surely more money is better. Well, no, because for giving blood, this is not a normal good. This is the kind of good where, where goodwill, where your payment is giving it for free because you feel like you're helping other people. And I think the participatory process that we're talking about here, it's important to realize that it's not jelly. That's why it's, why it's such an excellent comment that really what we're in this for is not just figuring out what the costs and benefits are. We're in this because ever since our, we were in, huddled around the campfires in the Serengeti, we lived in these networks of people where we had to make decisions about our fates. And those decisions, those collective decisions, that's part of what makes us human. It's part of this process that, that makes us better than who we are, better than all the, the dollar figures would, would, would really say who we are if we were just going to reduce it to a jar of jelly. I think also I wanted to mention something else that was in the green lining uh, poll. Um, and I'm on the advisory group, so I, I, was, I had a hand in, in crafting the questions that were asked in the poll. And, and I had in, encouraged them to ask a question about um, whether voters realize that they don't have to make a choice on every proposition on the ballot. And they did include that question in the poll. 
And we found that, um, uh, the poll found that 69% uh, of voters said that you don't have to vote on everything on the ballot. So that means that 31% of those, they were Californians, <laughs> not voters, think that you do have to vote on everything on the ballot. So there's already this confusion among a lot of would-be voters out there about propositions and this lack of realization about the fact that you don't have to make a choice on everything, that it's okay to skip a contest on the ballot. So one of the reforms I've, I've promoted for a number of years, and now that we have this poll data, I, I have some, some data to back it up, is to add the choice to the ballot that says, skip this contest. So you can vote yes on a proposition, you can vote no on a proposition, and you can vote skip this contest. I don't, I don't want to make a choice on this proposition at all. Um, what was really alarming about that greenlining poll is that when the, uh, when the crosstabs were done of minority groups, African Americans, 40% said that you had to vote on everything on the ballot. Among Latinos, more than 50% of those surveyed said you have to vote on everything on the ballot. So this is creating a deterrent. And, and part of helping inform voters is telling them not only about what they can vote on, but also what they don't have to vote on. And, and Bruno, um, you're, usually, you're usually pretty polite. Um, Europeans are more polite and, and more careful about lecturing Americans than Americans are about lecturing Europeans. <laughs> but, I'm not sure that you're so successful. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let me ask you, isn't the question, the question, isn't the marketing of politics, you know, politics is so, isn't that a bit of an American disease? No, no, it, it isn't. Uh, obviously, I, we learned that from the U.S. as well. But no, I mean, when it comes to, to, to uh, elections of, of, of parties, obviously, this has become much more of this producer-consumer uh, thing, that you have to choose between certain parties. One is Coca-Cola, one is Pepsi-Cola, and if you don't like cola, then you have a problem. So, uh, when, but when it comes to, 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 to ballot questions, it's of course more about substantive issues. I mean, we have here this exhibition comparing Switzerland and the American West regarding direct democracy. And one of the, of the issues which, which is interesting when it comes to Switzerland is that you have four to six times a year in election, a vote. And uh, it's often said there is a low turnout, people don't turn. But when you really look into that, you can see that in one year, 83% of the Swiss participate one time at least because they are interested and they do this information. But there's an important point there. Those votes are separate. That's a separate calendar just for initiative and referendum so that each measure gets its sort of moment in the sun. They're not voting on long lists of measures at the end of long ballots that have federal, state, and local candidates, right? No, that's exactly. I mean, we have now in Switzerland on 23rd of October an election for parliament. But that there is no ballot measure at the same time. This is really separated. And this makes sense because otherwise, of course, the parties just use initiatives for their mobilization. So I, I don't think it's a very good idea to, to put all the, 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 the initiatives on the same time as a general election as it has been proposed here. It's better to have separate votes, but to make it more accessible. To, for instance, vote, I mean, in Switzerland, 98% of the people don't go to the ballot station. They send their vote by mail and now by internet. And this changed the whole pattern of how to deal with that. And I think maybe you could learn something from us. <laughs> and a final word from Paul. Well, I was just going to say, I, I've never been able to vote in a mail election, uh, mail ballot election, and, and uh, have not voted absentee. I've always gone to the, the polling place. But you talk to people all the time who say, I, I got up you know, in, the, in the voting booth and I didn't know what this one thing was about. And I do think, even though it would take away some of the, 
you know, mass event and, and the uh, publicness of it, uh, that mail ballots are, are better in that you'd be able to sit in your home, you could get on the internet. If you, if you got stuck, you could say, oh, I'm going to wait and vote tomorrow after I've talked to a few people. Um, so, you know, there are always going to be problems with democracy, but they are solvable. And I think, I think the biggest problem is this divide between the legislature and the direct democratic process. And, and I think there are folks who don't like the legislature who get involved in initiatives, but the legislature has to, at some point, recognize that the voters are the boss. And until they do that, we constantly discuss about how we fix the initiative. But almost everybody in this state, you know, 75 percent in the latest poll I saw by uh, PPIC supports the initiative process. And you look at the approval rating of the legislature, and I think it just rose up to 20. Um, and, and so I think a lot of the problem is there. The legislature just passed a bill introduced on the last day of the session, moving all the elections to November which is much different than the Swiss system, which is going to put them all on November. Now, I like high turnout elections, but the way the legislature deals with this process is vindictive, and that has to change if there's going to be peace and cooperation between the initiative and the public and their representatives. And with that, let me say, please enjoy a drink. Please enjoy this exhibition. I had to edit it, and thank you. Joe said, please join us out in the back for some drinks and some conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, the comments are really good. I like this.